everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. Proving singularity of nature scientifically was difficult to prove so far. The reason behind that is the limited knowledge and understanding we had about evolutionary biology that proved it very difficult to connect and merge biology with physics. However, with the realization that biology can now be traced to its very origin by simply reducing evolutionary biology to cell-cell signaling, the barriers to understanding science evolution have been slowly crumbling. As a result, the ongoing reduction of biology to cellular networks and cell-cell signaling brings a lot of promise as it gives us an understanding of the role of quantum mechanics and allow us to empirically formulate the basis for the singularity of the nature for the very first time. Moreover, with category theory now being widely used as universal modeling tool to resolve complex problems, not only in physics, engineering, and design, but also life sciences, we are getting closer to understanding the complex evolutionary processes and be able to comprehend the singularity of nature. To discuss, the singularity of nature further, I'm honored to welcome Professor John S. Torday to Risk Roundup. Professor Torday is a development physiologist from UCLA and with a strong interest in how and why physiology has evolved. He believes that the way to make biology and medicine rational and predictive is by reducing evolution to cell-cell biology as shown in his book, Evolutionary Biology, Cell-Cell Communication and Complex Disease. Welcome, Professor Tordi. We are so very honored to have you on this Roundup. Oh, hi. Well, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, so hopefully at the end of this session, <laughs> maybe there'll be some consensus or at least questions and answers. <laughs> yeah. Yes, definitely. No, uh, we are very honored to have you here too. So in many of your papers I was reading, and thank you for sharing all the work that you, you know, have done over the years. In many of those papers, you write that the Big Bang of the Singularity gave rise to both the physical and biological domains. Now, recently, it has been reported that a star is discovered that is perhaps older than the universe. What do you make of it? What is the impact of this discovery of star and how it impacts our current understanding of science? How Do you think that the theory of Big Bang will hold up in the coming years? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, I, I saw that report. Um, it's hard to, it's possible that that's an earlier iteration of the same process. So we're just working our way backwards in, in space and time. But um, I do think that um, for earthly evolution, uh, the Big Bang still seems to hold up. Um, my sense is that uh, science is an ongoing process. It's not, it's not um, hardwired, if you will. It's, it's, it's an ongoing quest for understanding. So as we peel back these layers uh, <laughs> of information, we have to begin to cobble together a knowledge base. So that's really what my, uh, my hope is that that with an understanding of, of evolution from its origins rather than from its its ends as darwin had done that we will in fact be able to move forward with a, a common ground for physics chemistry and biology so yeah. i don't know if that answered your question but you yeah. know i hear you i mean science is an ongoing process i mean today we understand a little bit tomorrow we'll understand more day after tomorrow you know a little bit more so this you know and then as we discover more in the universe our chain you know understanding changes the and now this emerging understanding is that the beginning of life on earth is thought to have been mediated by lipids in one of your papers you have written immersed in the primordial oceans spontaneously forming micelles as prototypical cells that distinguish the internal and the external environment now again you know just we'll, very briefly, we'll just talk about this new discovery of the star, is that if Big Bang is not the acknowledged progenitor of both the physical and biological realms, what could be, what makes, the, and again, you know, what makes them compatible with one another, cell and the environment? So this uh, star that we discovered that is older than the universe, if that exists, then 
could there have been another big bang you know that could have happened way before you know the understanding of the time we had yeah um again i mean there is the multiverse theory that we're we're in only one of many universes so if i ascribe to that idea then maybe this discovery um offers an opportunity to see that that relationship uh, more as a linear kind of process of one uh, big bang giving rise to another. So again, um, I think that the contemporary idea of uh, the uh, conventional idea of the big bang um, still is consistent with earthly evolution. On the other hand, perhaps this new star that has been discovered will give rise to a bigger, a, a larger platform for an understanding of organic evolution. I, I don't know, but at least, but at least um, for me, that idea of, because I am trained as a lipid chemist, amongst other things, it makes all the sense in the world to me that lipids suspended in water form protocells or micelles. And those uh, lipids uh, have an interesting property. They, they exhibit hysteresis. So the warming and cooling of the oceans and, and these protocells, you know, losing their form and regaining their form is memory. And memory is essential for evolution. So in that sense, again, uh, I actually am in the process of publishing a paper suggesting that perhaps we can query the unicell and its cytoskeleton in order to understand better physical uh, principles because we're kind of at a, um, in a difference with, with contemporary physics and maybe the biology will offer a template for understanding the physics and then vice versa, you can bounce b between the two. Right, right. No, no, that's that, that's a very interesting point you made about that memory is essential for the evolution. Now, I I, I think you sent me a paper yesterday to read about that, but uh, I was uh, all day outside and I could not, you know, read that and I look forward to reading it. But how is memory essential to evolution? So, I mean, we, we know that whatever memory we form, it stays in the genetic pool. And then, you know, it passes on to the offsprings. But in the evolutionary process from the very beginning, if we talk about the unicellular organism, do they also go to similar process, you know, and do their, they also can save memory in the very limited you know, amount of genetic code that they have? Yes. All organisms have memory in the sense that, so, so I think there's a misunderstanding of what consciousness actually is. I think that consciousness is actually the homologue of the cosmos. So we both, both the cosmos and our minds and our physiology operate on, by, under the same laws of nature. Natural laws form both organic and inorganic or, or um, the existence of matter itself. So for me, the big insight was that um, I, I don't think anyone else has suggested this. I'm not a physicist, but it makes sense to me that um, based upon Newton's uh, third law of motion, when the Big Bang occurred, there had to have been a recoil, a, a response to that. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, and that was necessary for the formation of matter. Otherwise, everything would be energy. So what I'm saying is that um, that process, that recoil, is the same principle uh, that, that underlies our physiology as homeostasis. They're one and the same process. So there is a common ground between physical evolution, if you will, from whatever that singularity was, hypothetically, and ultimately how biology has complied with those same set of principles. It only makes sense to me as a, as a human being that that must be true. We just haven't up until now had the opportunity to, to make that uh, those connections because uh, as it has been uh, documented by Betty's, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, in the unity of biology uh, by Betty Smokovitis, there is no cell biology in any of the evolutionary literature. And that's a historic glitch because when the evolutionists were not able to explain ontogeny, recapitulating phylogeny, or uh, Spemann's organizing principle, which were discovered at the, in the late um, 19th century, uh, the evolutionists uh, shifted to genetics for lack of any other um, way of understanding that. And, and we've never gone back. We've never re-embraced cell biology in evolution. And yet, 
cell biology is the fundament of both biology and medicine. So there's a huge gap there. And that's what I'm, at least historically, what I'm trying to backfill is that, is that glitch. Because it, we, you, cannot, you cannot explain contemporary biology and medicine without cell biology and therefore evolution. So that's, that's what the intent was. No, that you're, you're, you're absolutely correct on that, that, you know, the whole focus was on the genetic code and genome. And there was uh, never, you know, any focus on the uh, physiology, you know, of the organism. So now, you know, uh, it seems that both the physical and the biological domains are mini singularities. You have written in one of your papers. Uh, and that is uh, authored by the Big Bang. So how does it give us understanding of a valid pathway for quantum evolutionary development through cell-cell interactions? How does that, you know, work? So that's the, the foundation of um, contemporary understanding of embryologic development. Um, the big breakthrough in my laboratory when I was a PhD student at McGill was that we were studying the effect of a simple molecule, hydrocortisone, cortisol, it was discovered serendipitously to accelerate uh, fetal development, embryonic development, if given to um, a pregnant uh, sheep in the, in the first studies, and then rats and mice and other laboratory animals. And what we discovered was that the hormone actually didn't affect uh, the the cells that the the the, the, the evolved cells that uh, provide specialized function uh, in the, in the lung. It's the epithelial cells that line the alveoli, the little uh, like clusters for oxygenation. Um, and um, so doing cell culture work, we discovered that the hormone actually affected what I referred to commonly as connective tissue cells or fibroblasts. They in turn produce a small molecular weight uh, peptide that in turn stimulates the epithelium to differentiate uh, to differentiate. That was a huge breakthrough uh, that occurred in the late 70s. My coworker, a physician scientist, published that paper in Science in 1979. So that was the beginning of a fundamental understanding of embryologic development. Um, so that was, and that in turn uh, led me to this, uh, and, what, and what I ultimately did 50 years later, <laughs> if you will, was to turn that around and apply developmental biologic principles of cell communication, cell-cell communication to phylogeny. So development is the short-term history of the organism. Phylogeny is the long-term history of the organism. And once I stepped back and realized what I had done, I realized that I actually was explaining evolutionary biology based upon cellular principles, no longer based upon genetics, which actually doesn't explain the process. So I don't know if that yes, answers your that's an amazing discovery that you, uh, uh, your lab has made. You know, it it gives us uh, so much clarity about how things work. And uh, I mean, as I was reading that the reduction of these embryogenesis to networks of growth factors and their cognate receptors have, has offered us the opportunity to identify homologies with quantum mechanics, which can uh, redu further reduce biology to a level that coherently coherence with the singularity of the Big Bang. So, I mean, uh, there are, you know, a lot of the model biological, uh, I was reading that, you know, there are a lot of uh, examples that we see in real life. Uh, for example, migratory birds. And uh, uh, there is uh, how the reproductive physiology of birds, particularly the effect of ambient light on their pineal gland, which regulates reproductive physiology. So, there are a lot of examples that can be seen in the real world. So is there a fundamental difference between the biological traits that we see, not only in humans, but animals, birds, or any other living organism that can underpin evolution and the process, process of evolution itself? Yes. So the reason I uh, raised that scenario of bird migration is because Ernst Meyer in 19, so Meyer was the chair of the evolutionary uh, biology department at Harvard, and he published a paper in 1952 uh, stating that you cannot relate the ultimate and proximate um, mechanisms uh, of biology; that they remain disconnected. There are reasons for the small, for the mechanisms of uh, physiology, if you will, 
and independently evolution itself. Um, but at the time, he, uh, there was no evidence for the interrelationship between ambient light uh, changing seasonally and that, that driving um, migratory uh, activity through the reproductive strategy. So he wasn't aware of that. But even to this day, uh, strict Darwinian evolutionists will not try to understand an evolutionary trait or its, uh, its evolution in the context of what is occurring in the environment and how that impacts on the organism because the primary tenet of uh, Darwinian evolution is that it's due to random mutation. You cannot, so if it's a random mutation, there cannot be a, a narrative there. It's just, it is, it happened. Cosmic rays or, you know, some other uh, physical event that caused the mutation of some gene that then in turn, yada, yada, yada. Well, that, may, that has never made any sense to me. <laughs> from the day I heard that story, because it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't carry, it, it doesn't, it has no logic to it. But, I mean, that was the observation uh, that Darwin made, and those were the tools that he had at the time. But we're way overdue for relinquishing those, you know, that, that pr perspective. And yet, I mean, if I submit my, I've published 100 papers on this subject, if I, I've tried to submit my, my um, uh, papers to the traditional evolutionary literature and the editors will, dis will reject it out of hand, I do not understand biology, I don't understand science, I don't understand evolution, go away. So there's a very hard line. Yes. Evolutionists will not accept other than the traditional Darwinian perspective because the fear, in my opinion, having attended the uh, integrative and comparative uh, biology uh, meetings for a decade and doing symposia there, I came to the realization that there is a fear that if, if there is slippage in uh, accepting Darwinian evolution, the default mode is creationism. And that's impossible for a scientist. We cannot go there. So there's this binary, which is not valid. I've demonstrated that. Uh, I've shown how and why evolutionary traits primarily lung development and uh, physiology, because that's my training and that's my expertise, but it transcends that um, in many ways. I mean, you can demonstrate the validity uh, with regard to thyroid development or kidney development and, and, and evolution, I should say. Yeah, so there's plenty of evidence to say that there is a, there is a narrative, <laughs> there is a story, and that that narrative is critically important, not only to understand evolution, but also it's the basis for potential basis for preventive medicine to understand why chronic disease, it's said chronic diseases uh, are exemplified by simplification mechanisms like emphysema, the emphysematous lung looks like a frog lung because it is a frog lung. <laughs> it has actually devolved to the state in which the frog um, uh, breathes. Frogs don't have a diaphragm. They force air into a basically an un, uh, a bag if you will, and there's, there's, there are capillaries there to exchange gases. So the reason that people with emphysema have difficulty breathing is because they have reverted to an earlier form of uh, lung phylogenetically and also developmentally. And so my point is that we can, if we understand that and we understand that there are genetic and structural and functional changes that can be detected before the patient becomes a patient, that is the basis for true preventive medicine, for example. And you can devise ways of detecting that and treating it long before. So you, you prevent the morbidity, you prevent the mortality. That's true preventive medicine. I hope that made sense. No, absolutely. I mean, we do, I always look for that kind of preventive medicine because the preventive medicine that we say today, it just diagnoses, you know, disease markers. And uh, that is not preventive medicine. So we do need to come up with an effective model of preventive medicine. So uh, what you are saying it makes absolute sense. Now, uh, there are, you know, a lot more variables uh, that comes to understanding not only just the uh, genetic code, but the physiology and how it interacts, how the internal cell environment or the, you know, human uh, cell environment or any other, you know, living species, species how they interact with the outside ecosystem and what transfers, you know, what communication happens between that and how it impacts and how it directs whether the growth or, you know, developing new traits or uh, whether, you know, it goes towards evolution or whether it uh, drives extinction. There, there are a lot of things that uh, we need to evaluate, but we'll discuss that a little bit later. So right now, 
it seems that life on Earth has been dependent on these quantum processes since its earliest beginnings. And we observe many of these cell-cell interaction as examples of quantum processes that underpins the biological actions. So when we talk about these uh, quantum processes that impacts biological actions, what is that mechanism that drives the biological action? The quantum processes are happening everywhere. So is it the, we are talking about the quantum processes in nature, in outside the cell environment, or are we talking about the quantum processes that happens within the cell environment? Both. Both. Yeah. So, so a number of years ago, I stumbled onto a burgeoning um, cottage industry addressing um, what's called niche construction, which Darwin had originally observed the fact that earthworms um, actually retain their aquatic kidneys because they evolved from water to land. And, uh, and earthworms are able, able to modify the soil around them in order to do that. Uh, and I thought that was kind of trivial, uh, superficial, but then it struck me that what if the original unicellular state actually was the first niche construction? So the, the internalization of the environment, so this is Lynn Margulis's endogenization theory. Uh, professor Margulis was a professor of mine at Boston University and was an important driver for understanding the uh, um, how evolution, the evolution of mitochondria was her big breakthrough from bacteria, for example. So, but my point being that that realization that the cell and, and, and biology actually is integral with its ecosystem because they're part and parcel of the same process. They are all inter, all the organisms and their environment are, are intimately in with one another. So that's where, so that's how um, you have this interrelationship between the physiology and the and the uh, physical environment itself, uh, as as more than just happenstance. The organisms create their own ecosystems, and if you follow that le reasoning, it goes all the way from the unicellular state um, to Gaia, to Earth, to the Earth Mother idea that Lovelock had. Uh, uh, sponsored, because there is this progress, there is no, so there's this progression from the very, very smallest to the very largest scales. Um, so, uh, and in fact, Nicholas Christ Christakis at Yale has, um, is an epidemiologist. He's described how in human systems, the same thing happens. He's described it as, um, he, he calls it his contagion theory, but I think it's the same thing I just said. So there, so there are intimate relationships between the biologic and the physical uh, um, environment that are more than just associations. So when Darwin traveled to Tierra del Fuego on the Beagle, in the opening uh, lines of The Origin of Species, he describes in great detail the topography of South America uh, at its tip, at its southern tip. And I think he understood that there must be some relationship there, but he didn't have the science to, to explore that further. I think he, I know he was right. <laughs> it's what I just described to you. And, and for that reason, we have to, so, so for the classic example of the internalization or endogenization is the fact that, uh, the iron, that iron atoms are at the core of the heme protein that allows for gas exchange. Well, iron is a very strong oxidizing agent. And what, what probably happened was um, there was a stage in, in evolution at which um, probably in the water to land transition where you had to be able to air breathe. And so the heme protein and hemoglobin evolved during that, that transition in a way where it's very um, existential um, and, and pragmatic to merely internalize and compartmentalize things that are, would otherwise have killed us off. And there are many examples. Heavy metals are a classic example, but there are ions, gases, bacteria themselves as mitochondria. So we are, our insides are, are the environmental outsides. It's what Bernard called the milieu intérieur, what Cannon referred to uh, as well as um, in, in his writings about physiology and homeostasis. So we've recognized this for, for many years. In fact, the Greeks probably recognized it back in you know, the fifth century BC. So it's, it's a well-acknowledged you know, well phenomenon I just came along and was able, to, there was enough, there were enough data there to be able to, uh, to assimilate this information in a way where there actually is experimental evidence and a logic ultimately for all of that.
Right, right. Now that that's a very good point you made. Now, since quantum effects, uh, I was reading your papers that quantum effects of oxygen and gravity on cell biology is now well recognized. And I also did, you know, further research on that. So what do you think is the evolutionary effect of the increased exposure to electromagnetic spectrum on evolutionary biology? What will it do to its cell membrane? Because uh, every the whole, you know, uh, electromagnetic spectrum is not uncommon. We had it, you know, we have it over, the, over our entire life, but now, there is an overload of it because of the uh, digital, I mean, all these computers and computing and the 5G and all these networks developing, there is a bombardment of electromagnetic spectrum, now both ionizing as well as non-ionizing. So I, I try to do research and try to find out if anybody has done work on this to understand what would be the impact of electromagnetic spectrum on the biology? Like, how would it impact uh, human cells? How would it impact, you know, animals, birds? Uh, and I couldn't find much details on it. But if we have to make a hypothesis right now, what what do you think could happen if there is a large amount of electronic spectrum around, you know, humans, like inside the house, outside the house, near the cell towers? What could it? What could it do to the human cells or you know any other living species cells well i think that the reason you couldn't find much of anything in that regard is it either falls within the purview of you know radiation medicine um you know being exposed to high dose radiation and, and radiation sickness but what you're actually alluding to so i'm familiar with this field from the perspective so i, I spent 30 years studying a situation that was mechanically regulated. So when you stretch a cell, the parathyroid hormone-related protein in the lung and the bone will uh, compensate for the gravitational effects. And that goes all the way back to the unicellular state. I was able to show if you put lung or bone cells into microgravity, that that actually shut that, that gene off. And then if you put it back in unigravity, it turned back on. Um, others at Boston University have shown that if you put yeast into microgravitational conditions, that the yeast, uh, first of all, cannot uh, execute a calcium flux, and it furthermore cannot reproduce. So basically, the, the yeast cell becomes uh, comatose. It's like a zombie. But that tells us that there's a very intimate and close relationship between gravitational force, for example, and biology. It's fundamental. It's called mechanotransduction. But when you then talk about electromagnetic effects, my point being that you have to be able to understand the arc of evolution in order to understand at what point there was some comp some adaptive response to ele electromagnetic forces. Because to do it on fuss, synchronically, one you know directly, that's not the way it works. Evolution is a spatial temporal arc. It's called it's a diachronic mechanism. It's not a synchronic mechanism. That's where the so that's the contribution I've made is to, to uh, um, understand that, in fact, um, you have to understand the spatial and temporal relationships at the cellular level in order to begin to understand these uh, properties that have an, allowed for adaptation to electromagnetism, for example, or, or light, for example, uh, the adaptation of the eye to uh, changes in ambient light, from, particularly in the transition from water to land. There's a huge leap there. And and there you see, uh, for example, interestingly, that oxytocin, the posterior um, uh, pituitary horm neurohormone that allows for uterine contraction and, and letdown of, and, and, and milk and uh, breastfeeding, uh, also uh, was responsible for the evolution of color vision in the eye. So it's called a pleiotropic mechanism. But you have to see, you have to witness, you have to tease this all, all out uh, as a function of the comparative anatomy, if you will, in molecular biology, of which there is some, but there needs to be more. But we haven't been thinking about um, these processes in these terms. I took comparative biology when I was a sophomore in college, and I, they actually did away with that subject because they didn't see any value in it. There's huge value. But we, it's just a matter of how we look at the problem. Right. But I think now it's time that we focus on that because uh, several things could happen. One is that 
I this is very. I mean, before that, you know, it's very interesting. I was reading one of your paper that the unicellular organisms they have an ability to create an external environment around them to protect them from whatever you know is happening in the environment. And I was thinking, why we humans don't have that ability as we evolve and. the unicellular organisms can protect themselves by creating a shell around them to protect themselves but we humans we don't have that ability and uh, that is something you know that i'm trying to understand why we don't have that ability because uh, yes we are much more complex you know uh, organisms if we look at it, think from that perspective but uh, now when we look at the electromagnetic spectrum several things could happen one is that some of us you know develop an ability to handle large amount to do we will do just fine when we are exposed to large amounts of uh, this electromagnetic uh, radiation and perhaps you know we will develop certain you know traits that would uh, uh, help us you know to uh, adapt that but uh, there also could be large amount of human population that will succumb to that and uh, they will go towards uh, you know perhaps extinction or you know we will something else could happen we will you know technology can we, we can develop another technology that would neutralize the electromagnetic spectrum so we wear that and you know we will be safe from it so uh, it it would be interesting to see how these advances happen and what would happen to human body because the reports that i read you know there is so much fear about the electromagnetic spectrum especially about the 5g you know being rolled out everywhere across nations that what is it going to do to humans what is it going to do to um, birds and there are a lot of reports emerging that you know large amounts of birds you know they lose their ability to navigate and they uh, are you know there are a lot of challenges developing so i hope that you know we can develop further research in this area because uh, it's very important that we understand what we are doing because uh, if we develop these large amounts of uh, ionizing non ionizing radiation how human species is going to react is it going to evolve and become more much more stronger or is it going to uh, go towards extinction develop a lot of you know radiation related diseases so that is something that is worth investigating but since such interactions between biology and the environment can be considered as self referential echoes of the origins of life do you think we can use it to stand the evolutionary or existence pattern of the impact of not only this emp spectrum but any other emerging technologies like nanotechnology smart dust and so on because the nanotechnology is emerging rapidly and smart dust uh, is coming our way so what would happen you know the smart dust will be just like dust particle we won't even see it but it's going to be there in our environment so how over hum how how will human uh, body react to that because whatever happens outside will happen inside our body as well so is there any development in understanding about this uh, nanotechnology field and what it will do to human body no it's a great question um yeah again i i think that it has to be seen um historically um to understand how organisms early in invertebrate evolution specifically coped with um electromagnetic uh, uh forces for example or um some way of reducing the question of nanotechnology to the to make it you know to see it in the context of physiology but at at the earliest stages in which change occurred um because it's that there that you recognize the genetic genetic physiologic cellular interrelationships that then can be seen in a prograde fashion to understand what are the what are the what are the physiologic traits that we now recognize in in contemporary physiology that's the only way to, to in my mind to logically approach the question we just asked but i think it's a very good one and my guess is that there must have been um ways in which uh, unicellular organisms coped with electromagnetic forces we just don't recognize them because they're so ancient and they're buried 
in our physiology, but but they will they do emerge from time to time. We just don't recognize it as such because we're not we're not thinking of it in, in those terms. As I said earlier, you know the idea that simplification mechanisms of, of chronic disease are just that. Well, no, <laughs> there actually is a logic to that. So the second book we published, Evolution: The Logic of Biology, is predicated on that idea that there is a logic. We just have made things so comp we've complexified uh, things to such a degree that we don't even recognize means and ends. Yeah. That's a huge problem. Um, I actually wrote a paper. So, so in my laboratory uh, at UCLA, we do epigenetic research. The, 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 the likelihood, not only likelihood, but the scientific evidence that Lamarck was correct, that we do, uh, um, we do acquire information from directly from the environment so that's a that's probably the black matter of biology so it's maybe in that context in an epigenetic sense for example that electromagnetic effects might be understood for example but that and that that whole cottage industry is rapidly emerging and and i think will answer a lot of otherwise dogmatic or unanswerable questions in biology Let's hope so, because, you know, I mean, ideally, I, I think that it would be great if we as humans are able to adapt to large amounts of radiation, because it will prepare us for coming tomorrow in case we have to go to other planets and we have to, you know, uh, make home there. And there, there could be large amounts of radiation, you know, uh, on other planets. So ideally, it would be great for human body to adapt and be able to handle large amounts of radiation. But... Also, you know, there are also complex challenges about uh, the diseases and all that. So let's see what happens in the coming years. But I'm, I'm sure that there is a need for a very systematic study about what, what impact this radiation does on a human body, this EMP spectrum. So we will see, you know, how it goes forward. But it, it is said that a quantum world is a radically interconnected, interdependent world where every entity from, if you look at a part, elementary particle to galaxy, evolves like an organism entangled with all there is in the nature. And in absence of entanglement as quantum coherence, even waving our arms would not be possible. This is from one of your paper. So can you explain how human thoughts or muscle contraction or anything that happens to human body, irrespective of these uh, which emerging technologies coming our way, how would it? Uh, how how is that going to create an impact on the quantum processes and quantum entanglement? Because if everything is interconnected, what happens within human body, within human cells? Would also impact what happens in the environment. So it all it will also impact the quantum processes. What do you think would happen? So I, I start from the fact that the life began as an ambiguity. So based based on Schrodinger's uh, a book about uh, what is life, which he published in 1944, he laid claim to the idea that uh, the internal uh, entropy, uh, energetic hi hierarchical. Uh, relationships uh, are actually negative within the cell and positive outside of the cell. So there, right there is an, is an ambiguity, which, for example, allows us to physiologically cope with uh, the uncertainty principle that Heisenberg had uh, developed. So the uncertainty is coped with because we are an ambiguous construct, if you will, for example, or for that matter, um, the fact that uh, Pauli exclusion principle, which explains uh, the spin of electrons. There are four variables, um, th uh, three of which are deterministic and one is actually um, probabilistic. Uh, similarly, in my reduction of physiology and back, if you will, using a sort of a Russian doll uh, um, or what um, Gould had referred to as exaptation. So the idea that uh, any given new trait is actually uh, derivative of some genetic principle that was used earlier in the history of the organism. This is where history comes into evolution. So um, in that sense, um, we understand, uh, uh, so what I, what I realized was that there are actually are first principles of physiology. So I, re I reduced it to negative entropy, chemiosmosis, which is basically how 
the bioenergetics of the cell are able to maintain a negative entropic state because that is defying the second law of, of uh, I'm sorry, the yeah, the second law of thermodynamics. Um, because energy normally is dissipated with in a, in a space, in a given space, whereas in biology, in, in the cell, it is retained within the mitochondria and other organelles until you die. So, so this is how we cope with, um, uh, and furthermore, um, so that's a determined, and I'm sorry, so neg negative entropy, chemiosmosis, and the third uh, uh, component of the first principles of physiology is um, homeostasis. Okay, so both um, negentropy and chemiosmosis are deterministic. Homeostasis actually allows for a probabilistic allowing of the organism to exist physiologically within a certain range, which it evolves to, if you will. Um, obviously, if you, trans if you transgress too, too far in terms of the physical principles involved, you become extinct. But, but so you have both in, in quantum mechanics and in biology, in cell physiology, you have both deterministic and uh, probabilistic elements. That to me explains why we exist the way we do. We are able to accommodate through uh, accommodate the physical world through these principles, if you will. We are actually, uh, because of the homologies between quantum mechanics and cell physiology. Yes, no, I understand. But beyond that, you know, in terms of entanglement, my understanding, my gestalt with regard to entanglement is because I'm trained also as an endocrinologist is that so there's the principle of pleiotropy uh, for example the classic example is you have crystalline protein in the lens of your eye because it remains the the, the, the lens remains clear because of it but there's also crystalline pr protein in your liver how does that work there are multiple many many examples of what's called pleiotropy the same gene used over evolutionary history for different for different purposes and under stress conditions, for example, um, when you have an endocrine burst, it integrates those pleiotropic mechanisms to create a, um, a, a physical chemical field. That's entanglement in, in biologic terms. It's the same idea as entanglement in physics. Um, so, so yeah, there are these homologies at the very smallest and the very largest levels and everything in between. Um, that's, that's how I think of the interface between the physical or physics and biology. But, but again, you have to see it in a spatially, temporally appropriate way. Otherwise it doesn't work. If it, it, so classically, um, um, there, there have been physicists who have attempted that, but they haven't gone to that level of reductionism and, and particularly understanding development, development as as the short-term history and amphilogy uh, is the long-term history of the organism. Yes. That's a totally different way of, of thinking. Yes, very true, very true. Now, it seems that math underlies the dynamics of natural systems and it drives the evolution of phenomenon via basic function that repeats itself across all levels of time and space, producing self-similarity on all levels of inspection. So what is the correlation with, with the man-made artificial systems that we are building currently? Like, you know, we build cyberspace and in the coming years, we will build, you know, other spaces. So how does math help us explain man, machine, matter, and mother nature existing together? <laughs> I'm sorry, you're asking about mathematics. Yes. Got it. So uh, Peter Rowlands is a mathematician at the University of Liverpool with whom I've had been, been dialoguing. And Peter has actually developed a whole new mathematical construct to understand the fundament, fundament of physics. Uh, and what I glommed onto in, in his theoretical approach is that um, uh, zero did not exist in the mathematical system until about 1000 AD. So the Arabs introduced the concept of zero uh, and Peter refers to that as an attractor. So the fact that zero exists in the mathematical system gives meaning to the ones and zeros of computer mathematics, for example. Without that, they're, they're, it's meaningless. Similarly, as I just earlier, uh, a few minutes ago, referred to, negative entropy is also, it's actually a negative energetic state. But if you uh, eliminate negative numbers, it actually is zero. So the cell actually create is also an attractor. 
So there's a homology there between the numerical numbering system and the biology, if you follow my reasoning. I think that that's why there's a commonality between mathematics and biology. And, and people exhort people like me like uh, to, to try mathematically express these concepts that I've been describing. I've been trying. I've tried. I've gone through at least what three mathematicians now, <laughs> and I was hoping that maybe um, the categorical approach that, uh, that you discussed in one of your previous uh, uh, interviews might be an opportunity. I, I reached out to Dr. Baez, but he didn't respond. I don't know if it was a, an actual email address or not. At any rate, I do think that there is. I, I do think that the way that I have constructed the the whole uh, entity of um, a, um, a cellular, cellular biologic approach to evolution is, is amenable to mathematical analysis. In my mind's eye, it's probably something like Turing, a Turing automaton with an actual brain, if you will, something that allows the automaton to sense what's going on in the environment, interpolate that, inter in, uh, extrapolate that, interpolate that, based upon a, uh, um, a, um, a memory base that is servoed to its historic experience or you can or it can create that so i do think that, that, that there are there are paradigms already mathematical paradigms that lend themselves to this it's just a matter of finding somebody it's an interface problem really <laughs> you know that's sort of a glib way of sort of writing it off but I, I do think it's feasible and i think it's essential that we develop an algorithm like that for all the attendant reasons because uh, you were alluding earlier to why it is that we humans are un un unable to fend for ourselves. Well, that's because we created societies that a lot that created the you know the space in which we could be creative. I always feel vulnerable if I don't have protection around me. I, I, it's it's impossible to be creative in an unprotected and insecure environment. So yeah, so <laughs> so I do think that um, it would behoove us to develop an algorithm that. And in fact, I had written a paper back in, uh, 15 years ago, which was published in um, a, a small journal, um, alluding to the possibility that uh, there is biology. And it was only recently that I realized that that idea is very viable because uh, Eric Sherry, he's in the Department of Chemistry at UCLA, writes about the periodic table, expressed the idea that Mendeleev didn't just uh, use acute uh, denominator, the atomic number to normalize the elements in order to organize them. He also appreciated the chemistry of those elements and how to fine tune those relationships. That idea that I think it's all about empiricism, whether it's chemistry or physics or biology, it's always something on the left-hand side of the equal sign, transferring, uh, changing into something on the right-hand side of the equal sign, and as a matter of energy and mass, changing their relationships. E equals mc squared, is pervasive. That's the way, and I think that's the way. So the empirical principle is really what drives everything. Uh, it's it's actually what Alfred North Whitehead uh, was postulating in his um, his theory of of uh, existence, if you will. He he thought that everything was energy. Matter was really a, a an artifact <laughs> of collisions of, of energetic states that generated matter, but it was transient. Yes, everything is energy. You're absolutely right. And uh, uh, the point that you made about developing that algorithm to understand how everything is you know, interconnected, that would be, uh, that is a necessity. And I hope that in the coming years, uh, if not us, that, you know, someone else is able to develop that. But uh, biology and trained energy via semi-permeable membranes promotes the reduction in entropy. That is a metabolic driver for evolution as a way of perpetuating self-organizing homeostasis. So is it possible to propose some specific linkage between each and every human across nations that how they are interconnected and how what happens to one human or, you know, uh, humans in uh, one nation, how it impacts, you know, uh, other humans across nations because everything is interconnected. If biology and physics are interconnected, I'm sure that all humans are interconnected. So there must be a way to prove this, you know, scientifically by developing some kind of algorithm to understand that how all humans are, you know, interconnected and interlinked and how what happens to one human somehow impacts, you know, any other humans as well. Do you are you aware of any research that has been done in, on this uh, area or uh, there is, you know? 
Yeah, I mentioned earlier Christakis. Uh, Nick Christakis is uh, he refers to as, as his contagion theory because he's he works in medicine. So the homologue for him is a contagion process, you know, Ebola or you know something, you know, uh, the plague, whatever. That there are these patterns, and he's actually developed a, um, a computerized uh, description of how societal uh, subsets interrelate with one another. He's demonstrated that. I guess the, the key would be, and I've tried to again to reach out to him to collaborate because then the, the trick would be to relate those mathematical, that computerized algorithm to the underlying, for example, the genetics. You start with some genetic interrelationship that actually predicts the, that phenomenon because it's a, it is a phenomenon that he's describing. And the trick is to understand the mechanisms underlying those interrelationships, if you follow what I'm saying. Yes, yes. It isn't easy, but I think that it could be done in a systematic stepwise fashion where you take some classic example and you phase that in and then you piggyback onto that other things that are, are related to that particular primary phenomenon. Yes. So I think it's feasible. It's just, it's so terribly difficult to find people like you, for example, who are able to transition from one, you know, intellectual silo to another. You know, because we're so we're trained in reductionism to the point where, certainly in biology, it makes no sense. Once you transgress the cell membrane, you're not talking about biology anymore. You're talking about chemistry and physics. So that's why it doesn't work. You have to res respect those boundaries because that's where the magic comes out. That's where the the mystery of <laughs> of life, the animus, is in is is in the space between the cells. Right. I don't mean to sound um, too. Um, uh, ethereal about this, but but so I love you know the Robert Frost quote in one of his notebooks. He said, "Life is that which can mix oil and water." He was right. <laughs> the question is how. What is the mechanistic explanation? And, and there, you know, there are problems there because um, uh, I've been in connection uh, uh, in communication with uh, an Indian uh, Hindu scientist for a number of who writes about consciousness and. You know, he took me to task saying, well, you talk about heliocentrism being only being recognized for 500 years. The Hindus have known that for 30,000 years. And I said, yeah, but where's the science? Because the, and I don't mean to be um, authoritarian or, or hubristic about that. I think it's important to understand the science because that's how you find the, the interconnections between heliocentrism and other cultural and scientific phenomena. Without that, with, if, if it's only a belief, it's only a belief. It, oh, it's a standalone. It doesn't it doesn't allow for that integration that is you know right. I was referring to. Yeah, and understanding this from scientific perspective is important because if we understand, then then we know how to develop these systems that we are developing at all levels, national, local, national, and global. Because developing systems that are interconnected and humans are connected to all those systems, so it's important to understand all these different interconnections so that we develop systems that would actually work. And right now we don't have systems that, uh, you know, takes into consideration all these different variables. So understanding and all these, you know, uh, theories or, you know, from a scientific perspective is very, very essential. So I hear you on that. Now, uh, one question about category theory. I, I know you reached out to Professor Bayes and I'm not sure why he has not responded. I hope he listens to this and he uh, responds to you. I will send him an email as well and see why he has not responded. But it is the math that underlies the dynamics of natural systems and it drives the evolution of phenomena via basic function that repeats itself across all levels of time and space, producing self-similarity on all levels of inspection. So using category theory to understand the singularity of nature would be you know uh, very beneficial uh, so you you and i talked about this you know through emails that it would be really good to uh, understand to use this category theory to for example understand what what is the impact of em uh, electromagnetic spectrum the radiation on human cells or any you know cells so that we understand what would happen over the years to human body or to any other uh, non-human living species. So is it possible 
to apply category theory as a formal model theory to understand cell cell signaling applications and to understand patterns of evolution or extinction i think so i mean i i looked at the, you know the, the description of category theory and i think i understand it and i and i would say that so we already have proof of principle that you can merge physics and chemistry through the periodic table all you have to do now is as i've suggested because I'm saying there's a homology between chemistry, physics, and biology. Now you merge the biology with the chemistry and physics in a, sim in a self-similar kind of algorithm based upon the concept of the, bio of the periodic table. You have to find a common denominator. I think I've expressed those ideas. It's not simple, but I think it's doable. Um, and wouldn't that be dynamic? If you had a common database for all the natural laws, <laughs> you could now search uh, use develop a browser that would be able to connect um, electromagnetism with biologic principles. It, once you have enough data, you, it, it's a given that you have to have enough data. But I think the data are there. It's just a matter of thinking out of the box as to how those things, as, as to how to um, assemble those parts. I, I have a, had a close friend, an astrophysicist. When I suggested this to him, he said, oh, so biology has valence which sort of stopped me in my tracks, but biology does have valence and, uh, and it's demonstrable. So, and we know that there are, there are uh, prototypes for that. So the target of rapamycin gene, for example, um, that is at the base of every physiologic function that I can think of. So, so there are precedents for this that could be used in order to scale up this kind of um, approach, if you will. And, and ultimately, I don't, I don't think there, I think certainly the biology is scale-free. Um, and I think the physics and the chemistry are scale-free too. It's just that there is a human signature in our understanding of chemistry and physics, which has to be factored out. That's really my dream is that if we could accomplish what I'm talking about and we could understand the biologic premise, which is not food, shelter, and reproduction, that's, that's, that's descriptive biology. But, but the kinds of things I'm talking about, which are highly mechanistic, you could factor out the human subject subjectivity in order to understand the chemistry and physics in its purest form, in order to really understand how all of these things merge together in a common database. Yes, yes, yes. Now I hear you that by by reducing the development and phylogenetic history of any living organism to cellular molecular common denominator against the backdrop of global environmental you know variables the causal relationship for evolutionary change it seems that we are very close to finally understanding that so how do you see un this developing understanding helping us make sense of the technological tsunami we see today that is fundamentally reshaping the human ecosystem in all these different spaces cyberspace aquaspace geospace and space well, I think that um, we tend to develop technologies just because we can. I mean, I expressed in a paper on the central theory of biology that it all emerges from the fact that we're warm-blooded. And because we're warm-blooded, and birds are too, that gave rise to walking on two legs, bipedalism, that freed our forearms to do specialized things like flight or uh, tool-making which in turn forced a, a positive adaptation for language and written, uh, oral and written language. So, so we, we are the product of this, uh, this systematic and sequential change in our physiology, which gave rise to a very large central nervous system, um, which allowed for creativity to, to make tools that, that violate, <laughs> that, that basically are all tools that um, uh, are, um, violate the, the uh, principles of, of physics. They, you know, simple machines do that. They, they make us more efficient. But in so doing, we have forgotten to constrain our activities in a moral sense because we're the only organism on the planet that's destroying it. Why is that? Uh, I think it's because we, have, we haven't come to the state where you and I are talking about, where we realize the causal, the ontologic and epistemologic principles that are involved so that we, we self-impose those constraints. We have to, because we cannot go on like this. We, are, we have dwindling resources. We have a, a, an ever-increasing population, dwindling food resources. 
we did this once before, you know, the Enlightenment. But at that time, there were fewer people, a lot more resources. And um, I think that, that what we're experiencing is the tailing off of the, that momentum of the Enlightenment. We need the Enlightenment 2.0 desperately. And I, and I think, again, that it's, 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 we have to be reflective about why we are doing what we're doing and why it is that um, we are not good stewards of the environment. Yes. My point is that if we, just like taking the earth out of the center of the solar system and putting the sun in the center, which gave rise to the enlightenment, we need to put, take ourselves out of the center of the biosphere. Every organism is conscious, in my opinion. Ready to Every organism adapts to its own environment. We yeah. happen to be warm-blooded, so we're not constrained by environmental constraints. But in reality, we're still, we still have to comply with the laws of physics, ultimately, or pay the penalty. That's what was happening, to be yeah. global about it. So, yeah. yeah, and I, I don't like to be preachy, but I, I see the, the forest for the trees at this point. Right. And it took me a long time to realize, you know, why it was that 50 years as a funded investigator, I was chasing my tail. I really was merely... Uh, um, providing uh, a description of what was going on, not actually understanding the origin, the, the fundamental origins of physiologic principles that allow for understanding life and uh, and uh, death and um, and disease. So medicine is, you know, is one of the one of the democratic candidates that we have. It's we're not practicing healthcare; we're practicing sick care. This yeah. is a very bad trend. Very true. I, I agree with you on that totally. And uh, it is time that we uh, understand, go back to nature, understand its uh, you know principles, and follow that because every action has equal and opposite reaction. So we need to understand that the decisions that we are making today, what is going to be its effect for the coming tomorrow? Because at the end of the day, we need to think about the future of humanity. We cannot leave uh, care, you know reckless life the way we are living you know just uh, developing anything and uh, everything that we want to do without understanding how it will hurt the environment how it will hurt the human species because we are doing all these developments technology developments for the benefit of humanity and if the humanity is not going to benefit then that we need to take a pause and reevaluate our strategies. So having said that, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, especially about your books, your initiatives, uh, your research, you know, where you are going, and uh, especially those brilliant young minds that are out there who wants to make a difference, what would you like to tell them? Well, I, so I've been asked that question. Uh, I've lectured about this concept for many years. Um, the the question that usually comes from the graduate students in the audience is, well, how do I do what you do? You know, the reality is that it, it, it takes, you have to be able to think somewhat imaginatively uh, the way that I have to understand uh, the ultimate uh, relationships that, that, that we try to, um, we try to ferret out using very high, high level uh, tools. But the reality is, you, you know, as Einstein said, imagination is far more important than technology. Um, yeah, so so the problem is you, you cannot, I can't get funded to do the kind of work that I, I mean, I actually did develop an experiment that would have been proof of principle, but uh, just didn't have the, the resources to do it. Uh, but my point being, uh, cut to the chase, that um, many times um, we do experiments, especially in cellular molecular physiology, where we delete a gene and all of a sudden something, that's how I got funded for 30 years to study parathyroid hormone-related protein, because the alveoli didn't form in these mice when they were newborn. They, they died of pulmonary insufficiency. That was totally unexpected. So we have these serendipitous, uh, counterintuitive, gee whiz kinds of uh, observations, and we don't know how to um, in, in, interpolate them into the body of knowledge, because the, the knowledge base is not based upon the kind of thinking that I'm, I've been applying. So I exhort people that I talk to, if they ask the question you just asked, to think about the arc of evolution and to, even though you can't actually get funded to do the, that kind of work, at least you can uh, interject the, the observation uh, that, that you've made into a, into a different body of knowledge. And that allows for you know, you sort of have to finagle the bagel, if you will, but you can do that. You, uh, I did it, um, and I think others can too. Um, it's just a matter of thinking out, realizing there is a box. That's huge. 
And then once you realize that you're in a box, get out of it. Use your imagination. So that's the message, I guess. Yes, yeah. imagination is more uh, important than intelligence, I guess. You know, so you are absolutely right on that. So thank you so much, Professor Tordi, for participating in this roundup today. We appreciate your contribution to the field of evolutionary biology and helping us understand the need to adhere to nature, natural's, uh, nature's principles and the singularity of nature. And our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided today and hopefully take the first step towards educating themselves about cause and effect. We thank you for that. And thank you. Thanks for doing this. Okay. Well, so Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology conversions, and transformation happening across cyberspace, aquaspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, Risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. So let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups to other risk roundup video audio podcasts, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.